0: I think that's a great example of, I talk about in Indistractable in my second book around, there's this research done by a professor at Georgia Tech by the name of Ian Bogost, And he talks about how you can learn to play anything, how you deal with a particular task can make that task into play. And he even says, it's a little bit counterintuitive that play doesn't even have to be fun. That enjoyment and fun is not necessary for play. The only thing play has to do is to capture our attention long enough to help us finish whatever it is we want to do. And it's interesting because you really exemplify this. So he says that for anything to be play, you don't want to add rewards to it. That's, you know, the whole Mary Poppins spoonful of sugar thing is actually wrong. That extrinsic reward, it turns out, tends to peter out pretty quickly and makes you not enjoy the task itself. You become less creative. You're less likely to enjoy the task
1: because you're solely focused on the reward. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. My second conversation with Nir Ayal covered two things, how I inspired him and how he inspired me. If I'm not too presumptuous to say I inspired him, The first part is about his choosing not to fly. Several months into the pandemic now, we're all used to not flying. But when he committed, this was before the pandemic, most people I talked to called not flying impossible. Not hard, not difficult, impossible. As it turned out, he emailed me about 24 hours after our first conversation to say he had already substituted one flight with speaking remotely. So he shares about how he made it happen. Then we got into a bit of a back and forth about technology. We agreed on some things. We disagreed on other parts. But then I switched to where he inspired me, barefoot running. When most people say barefoot running, they mean minimal shoe. Near was the first person I met who talked about who meant running without shoes at all. Finally, I had a role model who had run in Manhattan without shoes. I'd been sharing with him before this conversation about my practicing by email. And if you look on my blog, you'll see I posted pictures of, of the cuts that I got and the, the blisters that I got. But finally, I could share with him, in, not in person, but uh, directly. He shared with me how he got started, what motivated him. Let's listen. Here's Near. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spudek. I'm here with Nir Ayal. Nir, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Joshua. Good to see you again. Great to see you too. And we were just talking about leadership, which is, I hope we get back to that. But the big things I want to talk about are one, that when last we spoke, you took on a challenge that virtually no one, everyone kind of knows they could do, but almost no one did, or even considered doing, which is to voluntarily, to choose not to fly. And then this big pandemic hit and you got to get credit for something that everyone felt forced to do. Now, I forget if we talked about- Or maybe I jinxed it. Oh my God, what if I jinxed it? <laughs> it <was> you. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also, I forget if it was during the recording, but we also talked about barefoot running. Yeah. And I've definitely written about it thought on my blog post about how you inspired that. Which do you want to talk about first? You inspiring me or are you being inspired, if, if I can call it
0: that. Where do you feel more excitement and energy?
1: Well, personally, oh man, that's a good question. Both of them. Uh, it's like, which kid do you like more? <laughs> Let's talk flying. Okay. So what I remember was that you said you were going to, I think it was at least one training session or one thing that you did with a, with a client that you could have flown to. You would propose not doing it remotely. And then I think it was less than 24 hours later, you emailed me and I was like, oh, it already happened. Yeah. Can you take me back? What happened at, at your side?
0: So, you know, w- my business, uh, I'm an author, but my revenue, most of it comes from public speaking. And, you know, it takes, it takes a lot of time to get out there. And, uh, you know, wherever I'm flying to, if it's across the country or uh, in a different continent, sometimes uh, it takes a lot of time, a lot of money and a lot of gas to get me there. And so based on your suggestion, this was a, a challenge I had to myself and that I then passed on to my clients to say, look, you know, it, as an option, I will give you a substantial discount if we can do this remotely. So instead of having me fly, I mean, many times, I'm I'm almost embarrassed to tell you, but many times I would, you know, fly to a a city, you know, take the entire day to get there and back and only give a presentation for maybe an hour or two sometimes and hop right back on a plane and and go back home. And so I I thought, you know, can't we zoom this in? Like, why why can't we, (laughs) you know, we don't have to do this in person. And so I proposed that to a few clients. Uh, most of them thought it was a ridiculous idea, but out of the ones I proposed it to, one said, that's an awesome idea. We, you know, for, for the discount, we could hire two speakers and get the same knowledge, but save a bunch of money and, and uh, benefit the environment by doing it through Zoom instead. Of course, now this seems like obvious because everybody's suddenly Zooming because they have to, not because we would necessarily want to, but uh, I was doing this before uh, Zoom based on our conversation and it worked out just fine. The client was super happy. I loved it because I didn't have to be away from my family and uh, my home. And uh, we didn't have to spew a bunch of, uh, of, of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere to get me there.
1: That was a play-by-play. What, what did it feel like when it happened? Were you like, Did you feel like you were taking a risk proposing it? Did you, were you thinking about your family when you were doing it? How did it feel?
0: Yeah, I really wanted to set up a, a win-win. I didn't want to propose, uh, hey, let's cut down on... on uh, Greenhouse gas emissions, uh, so let's do this. I wanted it to be like, look, this is good for your bottom line. This is good for me and my schedule, and it's good for the environment. And so it's a triple win here. You know, I, there's this concept in psychology called reactance that when people feel like they are told what to do, they rebel. Actually, I just saw research today, in fact, uh, pinning that the moment when Republicans began to shift away from being environmentalists. It used to be that Republicans were no more green than Democrats. It used to be actually a a Republican value to find ways to, to, you know, free market economics. If if solar could create electricity cheaper than than, uh, fossil fuels, then great. And then it turns out that where the chasm happened was when uh, they can mark the moment when Gore started pushing on it. That's when they, pushed back, right? That it actually used to be a conservative value, especially one in this article. It was one that environmentalism and evangelicalism or evangelical churches were aligned around protecting God's creation. And when one side of one political party took it on as their cause, then it made the other side say, well, whatever they are, we're the opposite. And so right. I, I was very sensitive to not make it feel like it's something that someone have to do had to do because it wasn't their choice it you know because that elicits reactance when you tell someone what to do they oftentimes will do the opposite they will rebel but if it's their choice if it's if if it's something that makes it smart from their side then it becomes much more persuasive rather than coercive
1: yeah that you hit on something that it really kills me to see the polarization the, the politicization of of this issue that i think i mean you point out i think the left saw this is like Oh, here's a winning one. This is like such a winning thing. We will beat them. Now, I think the the right also was part. I mean, I think it takes two to tango, and I think the right was doing its business too, uh, polarizing things. Sure. But it sounds like you did something that I see over and over again when people take on these challenges, which is that they think before they do it, they might think, well, it's important for me to be there. The other person wouldn't go. I might go this, do this, but the other person wouldn't. They see the other person as an obstacle, or Maybe my wife won't go for it or my husband will disagree. But when they actually commit, then they start acting like leaders and they start thinking, how can the other person be an ally in this? How can I lead the other person? And it sounds like that's what you did. You were thinking, how do I get them on board? And then they were, it sounds, if I read you right, they were more than happy to participate. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think offering that option. And and a lot of this, frankly, couldn't happen without the the time and place we find ourselves in. Historically and technologically, that we have this miracle of these uh, connected technologies that allow us. I mean, we're talking right now. You know, you're in New York City, I'm in Singapore. We're talking through this free service. I mean, this is this is living in the future. It's amazing, Larry. Like when you told, if you would have told me as a kid in the '80s that we'd be talking through these magical screens uh, uh, that that we could see each other through a video phone, you know, like that—that was what we saw. Like when we went to visit Epcot Center, this is what the future will be like. It, it, it's only possible now because we have these amazing technologies. And, and I think Corona is in many ways, you know, this, this is kind of not such an interesting story anymore because now people say, well, of course, but, you know, just a few months ago, that was kind of weird, right? To have meetings all day long on, on, on video conference and to work from home was considered an outlier. That, that was a very rare thing that, uh, to do. And today, of course, when we have to do it, we step up, we do it.
1: You know, in my experience, people would over and over just tell me it's absolutely impossible to avoid flying. Mm. And, I mean, they wouldn't say it was hard. They wouldn't say they didn't want to avoid it. They said it was impossible. Right. I'm going to give you an alternative view is that I think also all these technologies that enable us to communicate and stuff like that, that solve this particular issue also contributed to all the global stuff in the first place. Mm. So that the ability to communicate and do business all the time across the world also led people flying before. I, I think these things go together. Okay. We're using, you're, you're talking about Zoom to solve the problem of flying places. Mm -hmm. Well, why were we flying places in the first place? Certainly because of our airplanes, but also because we had the communications around the world that enabled us to have a deal. I mean, before, why were we, when my company, why did I spend that year in Shanghai? Because we could get shipments from Shanghai because I I could do business with Shanghai. Uh, we, We had a Chinese licensee and so we could do business with them. So that forced, led me to go there in the first place. Right. If we could only communicate with them by mail, then right. I probably wouldn't have gone there in the first place. Right, but that's not how innovation works,
0: right? Innovation doesn't work in reverse. The innovation happens, and then we have to figure out how the next successive generation fixes the bad aspects of the previous generation of technology. We can't go backwards and say, "Oh, technology should be wound back." It never works that way, right? Once the technology is in- invented, you can't wind it back. You can only make it better.
1: Well, I'm I'm not so sure about that. To me, technology augments or amplifies the intent of the person, and if the if the person just, I want to do X and I don't care what it does to get that, then you'll do X and you'll get these unintended side effects.
0: Why? If, if the, the airplane wasn't invented, you couldn't fly to go see someone.
1: Yeah. So people want to fly because they think of all the advantages that flying will bring. They don't think about the, the side effects of you know, the pollution coming at the back.
0: Right. So that's why they invent new technologies that disrupt the last generation of technology, right? If, if, can you imagine what going through Corona would have been like without these internet technologies? It'd be, a, it'd be a, even more of a disaster than we, uh, what we faced.
1: All the, these things that happen, happen in part because of a system that creates, right, if someone had said at the beginning, it's not just flying. We don't only get to go to the other place. We also have to dig up all this fuel from the ground and it's going to warm the globe and it's going to displace all these people from their homes. You know, there's no place where oil has been found. that's like a peaceful place now. People only looked at one part. They didn't look at the other part. So you're saying future generations will solve the past thing, the, the stuff that was ignored, but it doesn't have to be ignored in the first place. Yes, it does. Because you can't see the future.
0: Remember the story of plastic. Plastic was invented to save elephants. Did you know
1: that? Yeah, about the, about playing cue balls. Yeah, uh, about playing pool. Because of ivory. Yeah, yeah, and also cars solved all the horse manure in the cities. So go back
0: to, to plastic for a second. We know how... All the damage that plastic is doing to our oceans and what a disaster it's been. But it was invented originally to solve a problem that people were killing elephants for ivory and they wanted a replacement and they got it, right? I mean, how many things are made of ivory these days? And it's not just because of anti poaching laws, it's because plastic is cheaper and better in many, many ways than ivory is. But of course, then we got these unintended consequences. So the way innovation works is. You know, it's only with hindsight that we think that, oh, the people of 2020 were so much smarter than they were back then. No, we're not any smarter than they are, that they were. We don't have the foresight that they had. Had we been back then, we would have probably thought something similar. And so technology does not ask uh, for permission. That's not the way innovation works. We try and mitigate any harm we know of, but it's not the harm we know of that's ever the problem. It's an unforeseen harm that is the problem. When they invented plastic, they had no idea that it would cause the problems it's caused today. They would have no concept of, of what it would have done. When the Wright brothers flew the, the airplane with the uh, powered man flight, they had no idea that that would you so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. They,
1: they could not have known. I would be happy to say all of that myself as well. But you're talking about technology. I'm talking about human systems and human values. They're similar, but they're not the same thing. So when we, in, in this country, we tend to have a view that if, and by the way, I'm reading, maybe I'm swayed because I'm reading this amazing book right now, Industrial Strength Delusion, and it's tracing back all these industries that use obfuscation to keep their stuff going. So right now, you probably know that maybe some merchants have doubt where it's climate change. It's like all this doubt and it's using the same tactics and often the exact same people that did it with cigarettes. But it traced back, she traces back before the many industries that have have used this same technique, going back to slavery in England, when abolitionists in the 16, 17, 1800s, how the slave industry was pushing back on them. But in this country, we tend to have a view that something, the you have to prove that something's unsafe, like for a lot of chemicals, for a lot of technologies, you have to prove that it's unsafe. And then later, if it's found, if it's, but we'll try it, we'll use it. I, I just finished a chapter on radon, radium. That people were like, oh, radium is going to be great for all these things. And it was killing all these people. But it could have gone the other way. We could have, we have to, there are places where you have to prove that it's safe before you do it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, it may be that something would still grow and grow. But what I'm talking about is human values, human, perspe- human uh, systems.
0: Yeah, I think it's a little idealistic, to be honest. I, I think that you know, there are clearly harms that are unintended to every technology. Paul Virilio, the philosopher... Eloquently said that when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's innovation. And it's not very humble of us to think that those people would, you know, were just uninformed or they were stupid or they, you know, they were sinister and they knew what they were doing. They believed a certain way because that was their perspective back then. And if we were back then, don't delude yourself. You probably would have been a slave owner. Right, you will probably would have done terrible things today. There are probably things today that we do that we will look back in a hundred years and say that is horrible. That is, that is absolutely abhorrent because we live in our age today, and so we have to do our best to try and uh, prevent harm. But the the worst harm is the harm we don't see, the harm we don't predict, that we convince ourselves is fine. But that, that's never be the case.
1: I agree with all this. My point is not to say that technology and innovation shouldn't happen, or that we're Ignorant or somehow, my point is, I think a lot of people say they look to technology as the solution to our problems, even if you recognize that that will cause future problems.
0: Technology is the only thing that's ever increased standards of living. Prayer and meditation haven't done it. What's increased standard of living? What's it, what has brought more people out of abject misery other than technology enabled by good
1: government? Education. What gives us good education? Democracy. The education is a technology. Oh, well, in that case, if everything's a technology. All right, here's something that comes to mind, is that when the Polynesians found Hawaii, there was trade between Polynesia and Hawaii. And the archaeological record apparently shows that the quality of, of nature uh, in Hawaii was like degrading. And then for some reason, communication with the rest of Polynesia ended. And they couldn't, there was no trade anymore. And then the archaeological record shows that wildlife was, it started increasing again. I wasn't there, so I I don't know exactly what happened. But my guess is that when they realized it's just us, let's change our rules so that we, I mean, apparently they're like draconian rules for like killing certain animals. I would guess because there were very few of them and they realized that we could lose these. That's not technology. That's people realizing that it's just us. There's no one to save us. We can't just get more trees if we cut our last ones down. I don't know exactly how the conversation went or maybe it's the misreading of history because we don't have a whole lot of records of it.
0: Well, I'm, I'm not arguing with you that conservation is a, is a wonderful thing. I don't think there's any disagreement around that.
1: Well, I'm saying it seems to me an improvement of quality of life that didn't come through innovation. Unless you want to call, it sounds to me like it was a social, uh, what's the word, reprioritization of values that came with the change in recognizing they couldn't get resources elsewhere.
0: I think what you're describing is the the problem of the commons, that when there is a common space and everybody is out for themselves that the commons are destroyed. I mean, this is why there's very few cedars in Lebanon today and, and why there's, we almost killed off every last buffalo because it was there was no con- a, a conservation. There was no preservation of these common goods. We just did, you know, people did in their own interest as much as they, uh, they could get as much as they could as quickly as possible. But I would argue that it was through the coordination enabled by good government and Technological innovation to help people work together to say that look, if we don't conserve, if we don't allocate plots of land as as uh, protected, uh, if we don't make sure that certain species are protected, that they won't exist anymore, that's wonderful. I'm all for conservation. I don't think that's anti-technology at all. In fact, I think we find that
1: that's why I'm not arguing with you. I'm I'm not. Yeah,
0: technology I think enables uh, these kind of things. I mean, if you think about what you know, what helps us protect species, what helps us keep property private and keeps out poachers uh, and, and people who abuse the common space is facilitated by technology. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that as a good thing at all. I think that's
1: wonderful. My point is that there are solutions to problems that are not necessarily a technology.
0: No, I didn't say every problem is solved by technology. I said we increase standard of living through technology. So if, if the commons, if there were no more buffalo, that would decrease a standard of living. That would not increase standard of living. The buffalo dying off would would make everything worse. The rifle caused all kinds of problems. Not every technology increased the standards of living, but technology as a whole is the only
1: thing that has increased standards of living. I hear that a lot. I mean, equality, distribution of wealth is not necessarily a technology. It doesn't have to be, it's not only technology that can, that can affect that. And it can also, technology can equally exacerbate that. I think it will amplify what people want to get out of it. and. Leadership in the environment is about people's emotions and people's motivations and people's stories and people's beliefs. And these, can, these things can affect standard of living significantly as well, independent of technology. I think a lot of people just think the only thing they can work with is technology. And also, I mean, I'm also very swayed by limits to growth. I don't know if you've ever read the book, but they run these models of, of projections of the future, way too much detail. But if you, too much detail for me to go into but if you only rely on technology, it doesn't. it's not enough. You also have to do lots of education, lots of social change and things like that, which are independent technology. And I think a lot of people think they look only to technology.
0: I'm not saying that that nothing else is important. I mean, I think, you know, I mentioned that good governance is very, very important because technology, you know, the goal of every technology is to do more with less, right? That's, that's what technology does. And if it weren't for technology, I think we'd be really in a environmental disaster. If we think about... All the things that, you know, this two and a half pounds of, of uh, plastic and glass and metal that I carry around as a as an iPhone. Can you think about the environmental degradation that used to go into my CD player and my VHS tape and my television and my radio and all the things that are now all here, are all virtual. I don't have any CDs anymore. I don't have any books. <laughs> Very few books I, compared to the ones I, I have on my phone. I mean, this this is how we do way more with way less, and get economic growth, right? And we get uh, uh, prosperity, and and uh, now that all requires a context of a government infrastructure. Again, good government is very very important, so that you don't get all the wealth creation captured by a small part of the population. That's a whole another question of how do you distribute that wealth in a way that that increases everybody's well being. But I don't think there's any doubt at all that as a civilization we are moving in the right direction in that uh, technology doing more and more with fewer and fewer natural resources is, is a wonderful thing.
1: Well, I think there's more to it than that. If we don't work on our values, then, I mean, yeah, the cell phone uses way less energy than ENIAC does and does way more, but the internet in general is using, using more fossil fuels than ever. Than ever what? Ever compared
0: to what? You know, we as a, as a country, United States com- produces less waste than we did historically before the internet revolution, like we actually throw out, believe it or not less stuff, not just per capita, actually less stuff as a nation than than we did before the internet because we also consume less of these things, right we go through fewer eight tracks and record players and television sets are you sure absolutely
1: is that are you factoring in factories that we've moved overseas that Now our waste comes from somewhere else. Right. But even apparently, even when you factor that in,
0: we still make less stuff that gets thrown away than we did before because this is moving us in the right direction, that we can do more with less. And and it sets up the right incentives, right? If you can get your music cheaper through the internet uh, for zero cost, then it sets up the the proper incentives to not make you want to go buy a, a record or a CD or whatever.
1: All right. I think the summary here is that you're saying my read is that technology enables growth. Technology enables a better standard of living. It's not the only thing, but it's, it's what's produced most of those things.
0: And I think it's in many ways, it's going to be what, what saves us because again, I think this is where we allow identity to cloud our vision, right? We allow ourselves to habituate to easy answers and not look at, at, at facts. You know, I think I think nuclear power is a wonderful example of this. We are so scarred by Three Mile Island and Chernobyl that we're not investing in one of the few technologies that can actually save our asses. The nuclear technology today is nothing like what nuclear technology was 20, 30 years ago. And for most people, when they hear just they just hear the word, they don't even think. No, they don't know. No, no, no. Nuclear, no, 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 no. We don't want that. Well, it's, you know, we have to stay open-minded. And not, you know, just like the, the Republicans on one side won't hear anything that has to do with the environment, the Democrats on the other side don't want to do anything that has to do with technological innovation. And so I, I see myself as a, as a realist somewhere in the middle of, if you got any good ideas to save the environment, I'm all for it because I'm a conservationist. I want to protect these things. And so we have to stay open-minded to where technology can help us because I think it will play a massive role in getting us out of this mess.
1: I'll leave it at this, that I grew up thinking that and it doesn't seem to work when i when I read the analysis of doing the numbers, it doesn't seem to work out. Which, which part of it? Nuclear energy? Nuclear for one thing. But in general, well, I want to move on to, to, to other things. I, I mean, this conversation has been had many, many times. And I, I, if you want to talk as long as you want, I will be happy to converse as long as you want, because I think that there's some interesting stuff that I can point to. See, every time I try to move on to the next thing, we keep engaging more on this. And I know that this is not a conversation that will end within an hour.
0: No, totally. I think what we would both agree on, the common ground is that we should, we should stay open-minded and not dogmatic.
1: I also agree. Yeah. It's, I can't stand when someone says, yes, they're very dogmatic. Very many people are dogmatic. And I look at. to me, it's like my background's in physics. I got to look at the data and see, how, see what actually happens. Not what you want to happen, not what you think should happen, but what actually happens. One of my, the way I like to put it is in, in science, if you have a prediction, if you have a theory and it predicts something, And then you do, and you observe what happens, and something else happens. In physics, we say the theory was wrong. In economics, they seem to say reality was wrong. I'm I'm overstating it, but uh, reality did not conform to the model. Yeah, yeah. And we're like, oh, people must be wrong anyway. (laughs) And I'll be happy to keep talking about this as long as you want. But I propose talking about uh, barefoot running because I forget if it was recorded or not. So I was, I spent a couple months in, um, distancing out of my mom's house, a hundred miles outside the city where the pavement was, it, I didn't realize this was really, really rough. Hmm. And so at first I could walk like 10 steps and my feet hurt. And then later I could walk 20 steps and later I could walk a bunch. And then I was walking like a mile. And along the way, I remember the first time I walked two miles, I got big giant blisters on my heels. And I was emailing you periodically a little bit about this. I don't want to flood you with it, but I felt really good about it. Like, even though it hurt, I was like. I was toughing up, you know, not in some macho sense, but like, it felt good. And then I came back here and I thought it's going to be, the, the ground here is so much smoother. It's like this mm. slate down by the river. And the first time I went running, I ran for like, it was going to be a mile, a mile there, a mile back. And I got these huge blisters, but I found out five days later, I ran again and I didn't have the problem. And I realized what the problem was. It was not that my feet were getting torn up. I ran at like one or two in the afternoon and the ground was so hot. I could barely touch it. Oh. Those are heat blisters, not oh. burn my feet, not tore them up. Now, when I run, when I, I wear my shoes down to the river, mm-hmm. then I run along the river, holding my shoes in my hand. And then I put my shoes on to walk back or run back. When I put my shoes back on, they're light shoes. These are like the so-called barefoot shoes. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, there's so, it's so constrained. It's so confining. Right? <laughs> and I think, oh man, I'm glad Nier got me into this because now I, I really like barefoot running. Are you like really into it? Is it like really, a, it's like, it feels like there's a pleasure that I didn't know of before. It's awesome for many
0: reasons. I mean, it's one, I don't get injured as much. So I'm I'm not like a, a zealot about this. If If you run without pain, good on you. That's fantastic. Don't change. That was never the case for me. For as long as I ran, if I wore shoes and i and I bought into the whole you know you want the big cushion because you don't want to stress out your knees right you want like a big air bubble, you know nike airs that's mm-hmm. what you know that's what you I, I would run in, and I would constantly be in pain. I would get shin splints, I would get knee pain, it was unbearable, it made running not fun, let alone the next day after I ran, I was you know hobbling around the next day, and that pain is completely gone. I am never in pain when I run or after, other than like muscle soreness, but it's never, there's no more joint pain. And that's, that's why I do it. But I also find it to be really fun. (laughs) Like, I, I think it's also a sense of awareness of like, because you're running barefoot, you have to pay attention to what's in front of you. And I think that kind of gets me a little bit into a a, a zone that I find very relaxing.
1: When you first started doing it, was it hard? Was it because there's a social element too, Of everyone's like, what's wrong with you? Like my mom was like, I would walk with my mom because she walks every day. And so that's when I would practice. And my stepfather was like, yeah, that's weird. And the neighbors yeah. are like, what's going on?
0: Yeah, it is. It, it, you know, it's, it's so funny how we get into these bubbles of our time period. And we think that whatever is when we are born is the way it's always been. And that is just not true, right? And shoes are a great example of that. And it's, it's kind of silly, like it's you know, what a big big deal, shoes, right? But I think mm-hmm. it is actually emblematic of how we think, oh, it's impossible to run without shoes. Well, how do you think people ran for the first 200,000 years of human existence? <laughs> Running is a big part of what made our species so successful, right? There's, there's many theories that the reason we are the only hairless apes, have you ever wondered why is it that every other primate is covered with hair and yet we're the only primates that have a little bit of hair on our heads, a little bit on our armpits, a little bit in our groin. Why is that? No other no other primate looks anything like us. Well, it's because of our ability to run.
1: Is it in order to, to regulate our heat through sweat better?
0: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That if you want to kill your dog, I see this happening all the time. People run with their dogs. Terrible idea. Dogs are not meant to run long distances. And this and there's a great book on this called Born to Run. Uh, There's also a a Harvard physiologist uh, who wrote a lot, uh, I think his name is Lipstein, I think is his name. And he basically had this theory around how what really separated our species was that we had this ability to do what's called persistence hunting. And I talked about this in some of my books because it was so inspirational that, that, you know, if you think about it, a lion or a cheetah, when it catches its prey, it looks for the weakest. It looks for the young right? Like when, it, when, it, when a lion stalks a gazelle, it looks for the enfeebled, right? It looks for the baby and then picks off the weak one that it thinks it can run faster. It would never take on the, the strongest gazelle because that's going to be the fastest one because a, a lion or a cheetah can only sprint and they're very, very fast. But humans are the only animal that we perspire because we don't have all this hair, our, our ability to regulate our temperature through our sweat glands is something that no other an, that, that an animal that's covered with fur can't do. The only way that they can cool themselves down is, is through their mouths, right? This is why we see animals panting. But we have sweat glands that cool us down. So we, which is why we don't have hair covering our or fur covering our entire bodies. And so the way we hunted our prey was we would pick off the biggest kudu, the biggest gazelle, the one with the huge horns. And we would run after them for six, seven hours because you know these, these ruminators, these animals that you know, like a kudu or a gazelle. They, after a while, if you if you run after them, you you know, uh, they still do this today, actually, in parts of Africa where they run after uh, the biggest male kudu they can find, and they keep running and keep running for hours on end. And, and the kudu will sprint ahead and then stop, and then has to catch his breath and cool down, and then they'll sprint ahead. And if they do this for five, six, seven hours, eventually without a fight, the animal will just fall over and die of exhaustion. And that's when the, the hunter will come over and, and uh, slit its throat and then it's over. But the, the animal just dies because, you know, even I don't know if you've ever uh, tried to shoot an animal with a bow and arrow, especially the primitive type, you know, you have to be really up close to actually kill an animal to pierce flesh with, with bow and arrow. And so it turns out that's how we survived was through persistence hunting, which required running. So this is a massive diversion from the topic. But that always kind of inspired me when I run outside to think that this is a 200,000 year old tradition of doing what humans have evolved to do, which is to, to run barefoot. So I don't know, that kind of always inspires
1: me. <laughs> well, that joy. Yeah, it's, I knew some of that. And I, I read Born to Run. And you know, a lot of people, they're saying like, you know, that I was running on, on packed dirt and grass maybe, but we're here, we have concrete. It's not necessarily the case that concrete makes it worse. It might make it better. I mean, if our feet know that it's very solid, then it, cause I think the, the foam caused the injury. I think they say, because your feet doesn't have the, it's not as stable. So your muscles are trying to re-stabilize what the, what the foam is messing up. Yeah, I think it's, it's mostly the, so
0: where we evolved to run was on the plains of Africa, right? It was on the Serengeti, it was on the nice flat terrain. Mm-hmm. in the bush, essentially. And so, you know, that is the type of environment that we're evolved to run in. It's not up and down hills and rocks and valleys. It's, it's nice flat land. And so I don't think it's that different from when you're running on a sidewalk. You know, maybe it's a little bit more pleasant because you're not bumping up in, into all the, the undergrowth. But I think the problem, at least from my experience, is that when you run on these cushioned shoes, it is almost impossible to not heel strike. And this was the source of all my problems is that when I ran with big, thick heels, uh, thinking that they were cushioning my stride, what I was doing was landing on my heel. And every time that happened, I was essentially stopping and starting and stopping and starting and banging against my, uh, my, my knees and making the problem worse. Whereas when you take off those shoes and run barefoot, it's almost impossible to run incorrectly. If you heel strike, it hurts. You get immediate feedback that you are doing it wrong. It hurts like crazy if you try and heel strike while you run barefoot. The only way to do it is to run flat-footed. That the arch of our foot is designed to help us absorb that shock. It's an amazing invention, our the design of our, our feet. And so when you land flat, you you know without thinking, your body, your your, bi- your biomechanics just take over. And you you can't help but run the right way. Now it does take some some practice. It took me a while. You know, the first time I ran uh, barefoot, you know, I I was very sore the next day because muscles that I hadn't used before had to step up. But then a few weeks later, maybe a few months later, it didn't hurt at all.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the muscle soreness. I presume also the soles of your feet took a while to build up the the toughness.
0: A little bit. I mean, I I did slow and steady. And, you know, there's many people who can run entire
1: barefoot uh, marathons. I Ah, I, I, Sorry to interrupt, but uh, barefoot runners have won Olympic gold, New York marathon, Boston marathon, and probably more that I haven't looked up.
0: Wow. Wow. So I don't have that kind of endurance cardiovascularly, let alone on the soles of my feet. But I regularly run four miles without anything on my feet and have no problems. And my feet are not, you know, people say, well, aren't your don't you have like super thick calluses on your feet? No, they look pretty much like anybody else's, but uh feels great.
1: I man, I really enjoy it. The social part was scary for a while. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I live in Manhattan. I can do whatever I want. They're like I'm not hurting anyone and that's what we're all about here. It's like you're not hurting anyone, do whatever you want. And <laughs> yeah. I remember the first couple times when I noticed gravel and I thought, actually I know that that's not going to hurt me too much. And I just ran right through it and I was like, you know, bigger stones might hurt, but that's fine. I was like, yeah. That wouldn't have happened before. And I love that you're in the line of, of guests who have inspired me back. So uh-huh. John Lee Dumas, his commitment was he was going to go and pick up garbage from his beach. And those conversations with him led to me to start plogging, which is I not, when I run, I also pick up garbage. Huh. And I started. So now I only plug. I've, I've 100% switched so that when I run, you know, I have, a cer- I have certain rules. Like if it's, if it's wet, I'm not going to pick it up. If it's, you know, in a puddle or if it's absorbent, I don't pick up like tissues. Uh, yeah. cigarette butts smaller and smaller I don't pick up. Uh, and if I, if I don't carry a bag with me, if I, I'm running here, there's trash cans all over. So if I see a trash can, if there's no, tra- if I, there's a few spots where it's like a mile between trash cans. All right. I don't always carry trash a mile, but sometimes I will.
0: Yeah.
1: I had Joe DeSena who founded the, um, uh, Spartan race. One of these obstacle courses. I know Joe. Yeah. Okay. And we, oh, I think, yeah, I think I saw you on his podcast on Spartan Up. Yeah. He carries that kettlebell around with him. Yeah. And so I had this rowing machine and he and I were talking about indoor versus outdoor exercise. And I'd been thinking about taking my rowing machine up to my roof and I never take the elevator. And so I was like, how am I going to, like, I was, what was holding me back was I didn't want to take the rowing machine in the elevator because I felt like I didn't want to use the elevator. So talking to him, I was like, next thing I took the rowing machine apart, took up one big piece, 11 flights up the stairs, came back down, took the other piece, 11 flights up, back down, then to take them back, both back down again. And it was really fun. I mean, (laughs) because I'm like, I'm probably not going to do it that much because it was, it's really bulky and I kept banging against the walls and I don't want to mess up the walls and I don't want to mess up my rowing machine. Yeah. There's a mindset shift of just like, I'm going to do this. And then it's not like, oh, what a pain, but I'm doing, you know, I'm doing my Spartan race here in my staircase.
0: I think that's a great example of, I talk about in Indistractable in my second book around, there's this research done by a professor at Georgia Tech by the name of Ian Bogos. And he talks about how you can learn to play anything, that that how you deal with a particular task can make that task into play. And he even says, it's a little bit counterintuitive, that play doesn't even have to be fun. That play is not necessary, uh, I'm sorry, that enjoyment and fun is not necessary for play. That the only thing play has to do is to capture our attention long enough to help us finish whatever it is we want to do. And it's interesting because you really exemplify this. So he says that for anything to be play, you don't want to add rewards to it. That's that, you know, the whole Mary Poppins spoonful of sugar thing is actually wrong. That extrinsic reward, it turns out, tends to peter out pretty quickly and makes you not enjoy the task itself. The extrinsic
1: will displace the intrinsic.
0: Exactly. That's exactly what happens. So you become less creative. You're less likely to enjoy the task because you're solely focused on the reward. And it's interesting because you, you didn't talk about like, oh, and then I got it up there. It was, it was fun to get it up there. And so he says the two ways we do this is we focus on the task more intensely and we look for the variability, right? We look for the mystery. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that you're like, okay, hey, I got a puzzle here. How am I going to solve it? How am I going to get it up? Well, I'm going to split into pieces and then I got one. And then I got to do like, it becomes a, a game almost. Uh, that's exactly his concept of learning how to play anything.
1: If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's Joshuaspodak.com slash donate. Actually, I forgot to mention another part of it was that, so I carried up 11 flights, half of it came back down. So now it's 22 flights, but going down, is not the same as it going up. Then I get up there and I think, Oh man, that was all like going up and down. I'm going to take it easy for the actual row. So normally I wrote 20 minutes. So I was like, I'll take it easy. And I rode 30 minutes.
0: Nice. <laughs> it was just
1: like adding more fun. And yeah. there's a way that I tell it, I tell it a story of, uh, it's these kids, they play in a field and they make a lot of noise and there's a house by the field and, and the guy comes out and says, Hey, you're making all this noise. Can you guys keep it down? They're like, Hey, it's a public field. We're, we're just playing. So he goes inside and comes back out and says, all right, since I can't stop you guys, I'm going to give you each a dollar. And so they're like, okay, whatever. So they get the dollar. So the next day they come out and start playing. He comes out and gives them each a dollar because they're making so much noise. And then after a week they're playing and uh, each day he's giving them a dollar. And then they, they're like playing for a while. I'm like, Hey, that old guy hasn't come out and given us a dollar. So they go to knock on the door and he's like, yeah. And they go, where's our dollar? You keep giving us a dollar. And he goes, oh, I don't have any money to pay you anymore. So they go home. Mm. <laughs> he's displaced there. Yeah, deserve, uh,
0: yeah, yeah. You have a special, this might be your superpower, I think is that you have an amazing ability to make anything into play. You really make things into a puzzle, which is an amazing skill, right? Whatever challenge you face for yourself, for someone else, if you impose it on them, it would be punishment. But for you, it's a challenge. It's a puzzle. And I think that's really beautiful.
1: Well, it's, I mean, I teach it in my leadership course. My leadership step-by-step book describes how you got your environments, your beliefs, your behaviors is what creates your emotional state, which creates your emotions and you can change your beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, we're, before we started hitting record I was, okay, I'm going to be locked in. What role models do I have in this area? Well, Nelson Mandela, Victor Frankl, uh, Jean-Dominique Boby, who, is, uh, who wrote Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And these people had, my situation was like nothing compared. Like I got a long way to go before my being locked up is like Auschwitz. I mean, mm-hmm. this is child's play. This is child's play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's also a, a lot of like, what can I change? What can't I change? What I can't change, that's gravity. I don't get mad at gravity. And yeah. so I don't get mad at a virus. It's
0: mm-hmm.
1: actually... I, yeah, I just look at things to figure out how I can enjoy these things. Awesome, that's a, that's a, that's a great skill. Oh yeah, when I, was, when I was doing all that barefoot walking up at my mom's place and I was thinking like, what am I gonna say if people stop and ask me? And I'll get in trouble for saying that. I'm really saying this about me in the past. So I'm not saying this about anybody else. But I think this enables me to call more people pussy. <laughs> and I don't wanna sound macho or something like that, but it's like the more people that I can say, Pussy in comparison. I'm really talking about myself, right? That, and I'm not trying to be competitive. I, I hope the the playfulness is coming out of this.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's well, week, I like
0: yeah, that. it's them weak. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think that's pretty sexist. So we'll we'll say weak. Yeah, we that's what I gotta make
1: sure that in today's world. <laughs>
0: like like, it's the age of of me too. So we can't we can't say that stuff anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, There is something interesting. There's almost like a variable reward to when you're out there and. uh and you know you're doing something a little bit strange, the looks you get is a little bit part of the fun.
1: Yeah, I remember yeah.
0: many times when I, would be bare, when I would go out barefoot running in New York and somebody would yell at me, hey, dude, you got no shoes, Like <laughs> as if I forgot. You know?
1: <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Where'd my shoes go? <laughs> I haven't gotten used to it enough that I still, I, I'm looking at the other people's eyes to see when they look and see.
0: Yeah, I
1: yeah, went from feeling embarrassed to feeling like special. And I want to get past that too, to just feeling ordinary.
0: Yeah, it's part of the, I think that's part of the play. It's part of the game. The variability of, oh, huh, this is interesting. I mean, I think a lot of it is, it's, it's a, there's a lot of sensations going on, right? Your feet are actually super sensitive and like feeling the earth and like, you know, being aware of what it is you're walking on and how you can change your stride, how you can change your knee balance, how you can, you know, there's so many things that I think it just makes you a lot more aware of what you're doing, which I think makes it much more interesting than plodding along. You know, I can't, I can't feel my feet. I can't, like now when I put on shoes, I I definitely don't run as fast and it's nowhere near as
1: enjoyable. Now I want to wrap up with, um, there's one thing I've been meaning to ask you because it's been six months since I read your book, Indistractable. And there's one that I've used a lot and I think I got it from you. And I want to see if I remember it right, which is that nowadays when I say I want to, you know, oh, I'll just take, I'll go and read it for a second. Okay. Mm-hmm. I tell myself, see if I feel that way in 10 minutes. Yeah. 10 minutes. That was for you, right? That was, so what yeah. can you remind but me? I, did, that? I didn't invent it, but I, I wrote about it. I got it from you. Yeah. What, can yeah. you, because what I think is if I, if I still want to do it in 10 minutes, then I'll do it in 10 minutes. And I never do. Yeah. And I think if you want to do that, did I, do I remember it Right. Right, that's right, that's right. So it's not. So sometimes it's
0: misinterpreted. People think I will do it for ten minutes, and that's not right. <laughs> it's I will do it in ten minutes. So it, whether it's eating that piece of chocolate cake or going online and you know googling something when you really want to work on that big project or whatever the case might be, it's to tell yourself I can do that thing, but I'll do it in ten minutes. And this is actually this works based on a principle we talked about earlier. It's all about reactants. That when many people have um, imposed strict abstinence on themselves. It backfires. It's like a it's like a rubber band that when you pull, 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 and tell yourself no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. When you eventually give in, the relief of telling yourself not to do something, in fact, is what feels good. There's some research that shows that actually this is why cigarettes are so addictive, because it turns out that most smokers don't actually like the taste of cigarettes. When they stop and think about like what is this that I'm experiencing, like smell the smoke, taste it in your mouth, they think it's gross. The reason we get addicted to cigarettes is not just the nicotine. The nicotine elicits a sensation, but it's not necessarily what makes us addicted. What makes us addicted is it's the only way to relieve the tension of telling yourself not to do something is to do it, ironically enough. And so abstinence can oftentimes backfire that a much healthier way is to say, I can do it. I am in complete control. If I want to smoke the cigarette, I can smoke it. If I want to go on Facebook, I can go on Facebook. If I want to eat the chocolate cake, I can eat the chocolate cake. I am in control. But you know what? I am deciding to do it in 10 minutes. Not right now, in 10 minutes. And you're absolutely right that nine times out of 10, when the 10 minutes are up, you don't feel like it anymore because uh, we have this misperception that that emotions, that urges Will last forever. When we feel angry, we think, "Oh, I'm always going to be angry." When we feel uh, a temptation, when we feel desire, we feel like, "Oh, it's never going to go away." And of course, that's never the case. That these things are are, are transitory.
1: Yeah, you're saying, as you're saying, cigarettes. I was also think Doritos sounds very similar, or ice cream. It's <laughs> like uh, they, it's very they, true. Yeah, like it's been a long time since I've had a Dorito, but I remember the first bite would be really good. But actually, then they taste bad. Like after the first couple bites, in my experience.
0: Oh, I don't know, man. Doritos are pretty freaking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I, I haven't had one in a while, but I remember like, so I used to be clinically obese and uh, man, Doritos would, would get me. And you know what, you are right that the first couple bites are amazing. It's like, you know, the first lick of ice cream is always the best. And then you're kind of chasing the same sensation and you keep eating and keep eating. Even if you're not hungry, you're just chasing that same association uh, because the brain doesn't do what feels good. The brain does what felt good. But if you delay and you say, okay, I'm going to have that ice cream in 10 minutes. I'm going to have my first Dorito. Not right now. I'm going to have it in 10 minutes from now. Actually, that doesn't always work, but it, it works you know, about nine times out of 10.
1: And another thing, actually here behind me, do you see it says, um, the listeners can't, we're on video, but it says home stretch of a life goal. So I've been getting close. I'm not putting the hat on to be indistractable. How much of this came from you? Is that my abs are getting really, not ripped, but like, I'm getting really good definition. And I want to, I've always gotten several times. I've been close to this, but never really getting that last bit of fat away from like around the belly button. And so this is my reminder of like, I want to get to that. I want to, I'm in the home stretch of a life goal that I'm eating in a slight caloric deficit for a bit. And, but that helps me. That's my, like, that's my statement. And like, everyone can see it. Yeah. Not everyone knows what it means, but, uh, it's my touchstone when I'm, Actually, I'm not even eating, I'm not hungry at the end of the meal. I'm still full. I'm just not stuffed.
0: Mm, mm, and that
1: seems to be that seems to do the trick. Mm. But having this reminder up there, did that come for you? Or is, that, or is that for me? Like it's home stretch of the life go, no, I don't think that's for me. I mean, just to say, just to have like a reminder. Because I think of of your wife with the picture of the wife with the hat. The concentration. Room. And this is my own thing, like to remind myself I'm in a mode right now, although it's on like a month time scale.
0: Is actually intended to keep others away. It's meant to keep our daughter from interrupting us while we're we're working. So we put on a, a hat. That's silly. That's very noticeable, and mm-hmm. it keeps it it prevents uh, someone else from interrupting you while you're trying to be indistractable.
1: All right. So this is my own thing then. Yeah. <laughs> and, hey, yeah, I still think of you.
0: mantras and and uh, you know daily mantras are are fantastic. So if that reinforces uh, a goal, that's that's and it's working for you, that's wonderful.
1: Cool. All right. So to wrap up, any any last words, anything to say to the listeners?
0: Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah. If uh, If you're interested in learning more about my work, I publish uh, something original once every two weeks on my blog, nearandfar.com. And near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. So N-I-R and far.com. And my book, my latest book is Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And there's actually a an eighty-page workbook that we couldn't fit into the edition, the final edition of the book, but it's it's free on my website. If you go to nearandfar.com. you can get the Indistractable workbook
1: for free. I'll add that I subscribe to very few newsletters, and I subscribe to yours.
0: Oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that.
1: I don't click on everyone, but I—I I mean, it's small enough number of links that I—it's I, not a whole lot of scrolling through. I'm like, okay, I'll read a couple. Oh, the news newsletters.
0: Yeah. So I sent a weekly. I send a weekly uh, articles that I thought, thought were worth reading, and then I publish my own articles once every two weeks.
1: Oh, then I. Oh, then I have to look at that one. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're usually, it's
0: usually every, uh, it's usually the top article every two weeks is a new one I've written to.
1: Sorry, I haven't, I wasn't paying attention then.
0: No, that's okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Nira Al, thank you very much.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: The technology conversation probably sounded annoying. Maybe it did. On the one hand, it's annoying for everyone to dwell on differences. On the other, what do you do when you disagree on something? not talk about it. Avoiding the conflict doesn't resolve the conflict. It still leaves it lingering. That's fine on issues that don't matter. If like you like some movie and I don't like that movie, no big deal. But the air that we breathe, the water we drink, the soil we eat from, these things matter. We cannot talk about it and just let the conflict linger and maybe just let the ballot box decide. But as far as the environment goes, we saw how that worked out in 2016 I'd be happy to follow with Nir and record as long as he wanted. As it happens, he was in a different time zone and it was time for him to sleep, so we didn't want to go on. And it transitioned to talk about running. So I hope to run with him when he gets back too. So New York can see two old men running barefoot together, laughing. I'm going to close with a plug based on the couple stories about famous, successful people inspiring me to physical, emotional, and intellectual fitness and life improvement. So the going up and down the stairs, the plogging. This comes from really famous people that I didn't know before And now I do. This Leadership in the Environment podcast makes us peers. People love connecting on the environment. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone wants to act if they're led to, if you make it comfortable for them to, which is what this podcast does. If you want to bring into your peer group, into your life, the most amazing people you can think of, start a new branch of Leadership in the Environment. I will train you in the basics of starting a podcast and the elite skills of connecting with people you only dreamed of and making them friends. The guy who started leadership in the environment in Sweden, he just reported back to me that the third person, third person that he got on the podcast was an important government official from his hometown. And she is putting him in touch with a parliament member of Sweden. If you want to start leadership in the environment acting in order to meet all the actors you ever wanted to meet, if acting's your thing, or leadership in the environment in Silicon Valley, maybe entrepreneurship is your thing, you know, and meet all these VCs and meet all these founders. Or maybe leadership in the environment hip hop is more your style. Maybe leadership in the environment sports or NBA, maybe you want to meet great athletes, or any field, contact me. I'll train you. You'll meet the people of your dreams. You'll lead them to contribute to a legacy of environmental stewardship. And they will thank you. They will inspire you. These great improvements will come to your life. It takes some effort. It's not trivial, but anyone can do it. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodek.com/donate. Again, that's joshuaspodek.com/donate.